Well, uh, the Christian message, uh, it's got to be the best news ever, hasn't it? Uh, to be forgiven, uh, to be restored to the favor of our Creator, uh, to have this eternally secure destiny, uh, ultimately in a beautifully restored earth. Uh, how good is that? Uh, and we get it as a gift. We can't earn it, we just have to receive it as a gift. How good is this good news? Uh, yet I am sure that we all know people who have heard this good news, but they have not embraced it. Uh, they have spurned the good news as bad news. And the question is, why? Uh, today we are going to get an insight into the process of salvation from a human perspective. And in so doing, we'll get an understanding into the nature of the problem as to why people don't embrace the gospel. Uh, in the first century AD, as the gospel spread out into the world, uh, a strange contrast became increasingly evident. Uh, of those who did embrace the gospel, uh, the majority were Gentiles. Uh, strangely, uh, the majority of Jews rejected the Jew, Jesus, and were even hostile to the early church. So consequently, the church became increasingly Gentile with the majority of Jews staying out. Why? Why had the majority of God's Old Testament people not believed in Christ the Messiah? Hadn't God chosen the nation of Israel as his special people? Hadn't God promised to bless them? Well, last week in chapter 9, the question was answered firstly by defining who the true people of God are. We saw that the true people of God are different to the ethnic nation of Israel. Uh, we saw that God never chooses people on the basis of human ancestry. Uh, rather, it was always a matter of his promise and his sovereign choice. Uh, the sobering truth is that his choice has nothing to do with people's ancestry, uh, with their merit, with even their desire or their goodness. Rather, God's choice as to whom he saves is rooted in his character. His nature is to have mercy, and he has mercy on whom he chooses. So, uh, why do the majority of Israel not believe in Jesus? Uh, chapter 9 has answered the question from the perspective of God's sovereign choice, as I've just reminded us. But now, uh, from chapter 9, verse 30 onwards, we are shown the other side of the coin. Uh, now the question is answered from the perspective of human responsibility. Uh, even though God sovereignly chooses those he saves, it's actually Israel's fault that she has forfeited God's blessing and fallen under his judgment. Israel has rejected God's word and its message of salvation through faith in Christ. And they are culpable for that decision. As we look at the case of Israel in this passage, we are also going to get an insight into why more generally people don't become Christians when they hear this great news of the gospel. Uh, we're going to see it's a choice they make and for which they are responsible. So, 
Why have the majority of Jews rejected the Jew who claims to be their Messiah? And at the heart of the answer is a choice in the heart. It's the choice of pursuing righteousness by works rather than by faith in Christ. Uh, Generally speaking, in the first century, uh, a difference in approach to righteousness is discernible between Jews and Gentiles. Look at chapter 9, verse 30. What then shall we say? Uh, That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Uh, Do you notice two approaches to righteousness before God are presented? Uh, Firstly, there is what is called a law of righteousness, which is by works. Uh, What this means is it's a performance-based righteousness, something we do through trying to keep God's, the rules of God's law. But there is a second form of righteousness it talks about here. It's what's called a righteousness that is by faith. Uh, this, of course, is a righteousness which is humbly granted as an undeserved gift from Christ by faith in Christ. It's interesting that each approach uh, actually involves a response to Christ. Uh, One is rejecting him as unnecessary. Uh, The other is embracing him as essential. But each involves a response to Christ. And each person's response to Christ carries weighty personal consequences. Because what we see next is that to reject Christ is to stumble and fall eternally. And yet to trust him is to be upheld and saved eternally. Uh, This is what God has been saying uh, all along through the prophets. It's nothing new. Uh, Verse 32 continues, quoting from the Old Testament. Uh, They stumbled, speaking of the Jews, over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Isaiah, Israel uh, made a misguided choice, but their misguided choice was rooted in a misinformed zeal. Uh, they were very religiously zealous, but their zeal ignored what God had said through the prophets. Uh, their haughty hearts were proud. Uh, they preferred a righteousness of their own making rather than a righteousness They just had to humbly accept as a gift from God. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Uh, A popular view today is that when it comes to matters of religious belief, uh, sincerity is all that matters. 
uh, it is said, surely uh, God would not turn away people who have been sincere in their religious belief, even if it's not Christian belief. But do you say what the Bible is saying? The Bible is saying that is not true. Uh, the the self-righteous Jews, uh, they were very sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. And it led to their stumbling and to their downfall. Uh, With the coming of Christ, the righteous requirements of the law were fulfilled in him so that he could now grant this gift of righteousness to all who come to him. Verse 4. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Strange, isn't it? There is something in the human heart that balks at righteousness by faith. There's something in the human heart that pushes it away. Uh, Is it not pride? I recall talking to a man once, uh, and we got talking about the gospel, uh, and when I was explaining to him the gospel that It was basically that Christ was willing to pay the penalty for his sins on the cross so that he not need be eternally lost. His response was this, and I'll never forget it. I always pay my own debts. I always pay my own debts. I was staggered. I pointed out to him, are you saying that you'd want to pay your own debts before a righteous God for all of eternity? But why would he say such a thing? I pay my own debts. Surely, it is pride in the human heart. This reluctance to accept that gift of righteousness. And behind this haughty heart is obviously this whole disposition that people have to saving themselves, to self-salvation. Righteousness by works of the law. People try their best to be moral, to do what they think is the right thing, thinking that it will be enough. But of course, it isn't. Tragically, uh, such a path is the highway to hell. It means to stumble and to fall eternally. In case anyone thinks that Paul is teaching something new and novel, uh, in verses 5 to 13, he goes on to show that what he's saying has always been the case, and he does this by quoting Old Testament scriptures. Uh, The first thing he says is, from Old Testament scriptures, he points out that righteousness by works has never been the way. That righteousness by that means has always been unattainable. Why? Because it requires people to be perfect, to live perfectly by the rules 24-7. But of course, perfection for imperfect people is impossible. Look at verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. If you want to go and embrace the path of law, you've got to live by them 24-7, perfectly all the time. It's unattainable. But whereas righteousness by works is unattainable, righteousness by faith is attainable by all. Uh, There is no need to scale the heights or to plumb the depths in search of mystical knowledge. Christ has come and he has made these things known and accessible in the gospel, the good news that is proclaimed. Look at verse 6. 
But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. The word of faith that we, the apostles, that they are proclaiming. It's the gospel. What is required of each person? That the word of faith calls for a response of faith. But what is the response of faith? Now, what does it look like for a person to pursue the path of righteousness by faith? In verses 9 to 13, the response of faith is described in three different and complementary ways. It's a bit like looking at a diamond from different angles, and you see the same thing, but you see different facets of it as you turn it gently. And that is what Paul is now doing, showing what the response of faith looks like from three different angles. Uh, firstly, we're going to see uh, in verses 9 and 10, it involves believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, look at verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Uh, to confess that Jesus is Lord. What does it mean? It's to rightly recognize who Jesus is. He is the Lord, the supreme authority over the, war, the world. And to believe that Jesus was raised by God from the dead, what does that mean? It's to rightly recognize why Jesus came. He did die, and he was raised back to life, but he did that to deal with the problem of sin. So it involves a belief in the heart, which is confirmed by a confession of the mouth. So what does it mean to believe in our hearts? Because that is what it's talking about here. After my, my scripture classes, I, I try and test the students' understanding of the gospel. And I'll ask them, what is a Christian? And see how we go. Uh, often the reply starts of, of being uh, somebody who believes in Jesus. But I always want to push them further. Uh, well, yes, good start, but what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Uh, do you mean that just believing that he exists? Or is it more than that? Is it more than just intellectual assent? Well, uh, true Christian faith, of course, does involve intellectual assent to Christ being Lord and Savior. It requires people to understand and accept as true that Jesus is who he claims to be, and that he has done what he claims to have done. But Christian faith is more than just an intellectual understanding. It's not just being able to tick some creed. It involves a personal response of trust. Look at the second facet in the diamond, verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So to believe in Jesus, it's not just to acknowledge that he is Lord and Savior in an abstract sense. It is personal. It's to trust in him as my Lord and as my Savior. 
And a third facet in this beautiful diamond of what it means to reach out to Christ and to embrace the way of righteousness of my faith is calling on Jesus' name. Look at verse 12, it continues. Uh, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Of course it means to cry out to him for help, uh, to appeal to Christ to save us in accordance with who he is and what he's done. Often human hearts resist crying out for help. It's a bit humbling. Uh, As some of you know, I'm a a paraglider pilot, although all the kit has gone into the loft at the moment. Uh, There aren't many opportunities to paraglide. But uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to paraglide. I was in the UK, and I was driving up to see my mother in the Lake District, and I knew that there was a good area for flying in the Derbyshire. So I deliberately drove through Derbyshire, and I came to the the foot of this big basin, and uh, I looked over and I thought, I'll give it a go. It looked a bit blowy, and I wasn't quite sure if the conditions were just a bit too strong, but I thought, I'll give it a go. But it's not advisable to ever fly a paraglider on your own. You're always supposed to have somebody to help you. Uh, but in this situation, I didn't. I thought, I'll give it a go. So I set all the kit out at the bottom of this sort of basin, and the wind was blowing up, and I tried to inflate it, but it didn't work, and it flipped over. And now the, cells were, the canopy was facing face down, which means it couldn't deflate because the cells where the air goes in and comes out is at the front, and they were facing down. And suddenly the wind caught it and started pulling me slowly up this slope. Uh, and it was such a force. And I couldn't deflate the canopy because it's, it's facing down the wrong way. And so there I am being dragged like a doll at the side of this hill. And I look up towards the end of the top of the hill, and there is this three-stranded barbed wire fence. And I thought, I'm going to be pulled through that like Swiss cheese. And so there I am, clawing with my hands at the tufts of grass, trying to anchor myself to no avail as I'm pulled helplessly up the slope steadily towards my fate. There were two walkers on the top of this ridge because there was a path running along the ridge. And they were standing there watching this spectacle unfold before them. And I was clawing at the grass and I was looking up at them. But did I cry out for help? No, it's not British. You don't do that. But I was crying out for help inwardly, believe me, I was praying. But there was something in which you were resisted crying out for help. It's just a bit too humbling. That's a bit uh, beneath me. Fortunately, the Lord answered my inner cries for help because the winds just eased off a little bit to the point where it wasn't dragging me along anymore and the canopy was fluttering, were not pulling me, and then I leapt up and danced, bounced on it and gathered it all up and thought, thank you, Lord, for such a great deliverance. But... There is something in all of us which resists crying out for help. And yet that is the only way we can be saved, by crying out to the name of the Lord. So let's continue in Romans. In verses 14 to 15, uh, Paul works backwards then through the stages of someone coming to faith in Christ. And critically, at the very beginning of the process, is someone sent by Christ to proclaim the gospel, the good news. Look at verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful 
are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, If we trust in Christ, Christ commissions us to go out with the good news of Christ. Every Christian is called to tell others about Christ. So Christ sends Christians to proclaim. And proclaimers proclaim. They, they do what's called their preaching, which is not just a sermon, it's proclaiming the gospel. And people hear, and hearers believe, and believers call on the name of the Lord. And those who call on the name of the Lord are saved. To share the good news of Jesus with somebody, uh, it is a beautiful thing to do. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But sadly, uh, this beauty of the good news, that is, is often not recognized. Ironically, the good news is sometimes spurned as bad news. And this was true, tragically, for many in Israel over the centuries. Look at verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So what was the problem? Uh, Why did so many Jews reject Jesus? Was the problem with their hearing? Belief depends on hearing. What's the problem with their hearing? Uh, Did nobody proclaim the good news to them? Verse 18. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Uh, It's actually quoting here from Psalm 19. Uh, The voice in Psalm 19, interestingly... Uh, is the voice of creation testifying to everyone of the reality of God's existence. Uh, But Paul is quoting it here, not just saying it is the creation that testified. It's also the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, The Jewish people did have the global witness of both the creation, but also the witness of the church. Uh, You'll know, of course, from reading in the book of Acts, uh, whenever... Paul went to a new city, what would he do? What was his strategy? He would go first to the synagogue and he would tell the Jews the message of Jesus. And if, as they often did, they rejected that, then he would go to the Gentiles. So the point being made is that wherever a Jewish community existed, the gospel has been preached. They have heard it. So if they heard... The next question is, did they not understand what they heard? But the answer again is, oh yes, uh, they understood perfectly well. Uh, Paul quotes the words of Moses to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And at that time, uh, Israel had consistently rejected God and he provoked them, uh, provoked God to jealous anger. And so with a great twist of irony in Deuteronomy 32, uh, God pronounces that he will in turn provoke a jealous anger in Israel. Because Israel has understood but still rejected God, 
he would now turn to bless the Gentiles who don't understand. Now, there are people with no understanding, but they are not the Jews, but the Gentiles. Look at verse 19. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? At first, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask me. So the question is still there. Why did Israel not respond with faith? The problem is not with hearing. The problem is not with understanding. The problem is with their hearts. God has consistently held out his hands to the Jews to receive them back. God has been like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. He has been graciously forbearing. But how have Israel responded? They have spurned his grace because their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. Verse 21. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So you see, they are fully culpable for their rejection of the Messiah. It's due to their hard hearts that God's judgment has come upon them. Their refusal of grace means that Jesus will be for them a stone which causes them to stumble and fall, not the rock of their salvation. So as we pull it all together, in conclusion, uh, what can we draw out of this for ourselves today? The first thing we see is this. Unbelief is not God's fault. Uh, chapter 9 told us about God's absolute sovereignty in choosing those he wishes to save. Chapter 10 teaches us that people are culpable if they reject God's message of salvation. It's interesting that the Bible teaches equally both God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. And it means each person is responsible for their response to Christ. If they choose not to come to him for the righteousness that he offers, then they are without excuse. God cannot be blamed, therefore, if we or others do not believe. Each person has an active role in turning to God for their salvation. That's the first thing we see here. Um, God is not fault, not at fault for unbelief. The second thing we see is the part that Christians play in the salvation of others. And there are two subpoints under this. Uh, firstly, uh, prayer. Praying for the lost. Uh, in chapter 9, we saw that God chooses whom he will save. It is his sovereign choice. Uh, surely, it would be possible to conclude that there is therefore no point in praying for people to become Christians. Uh, God will surely choose whom he will choose. I can't influence that. Here's the question. Did 
this teaching on God's sovereign choice, which Paul himself teaches very clearly, did it undermine Paul's readiness to pray for the lost? Uh, it didn't. Uh, did you notice in chapter 10, verse 1, what he says? Let's look at it again. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul believed in God's sovereignty, but it didn't stop him praying for the lost. He poured his heart out, and so should we. And the question, therefore, is who has God placed on our heart to pray for? Uh, certainly loved ones, uh, certainly family and friends, but who else does Christ call us to pray for? He also calls us to pray for our enemies. Could you pray for the salvation of somebody who has hurt you grievously? We should pray for the lost. We should pray for all people. Uh, we should pour our hearts out in anguish for those we know are going to a lost eternity. And we should keep praying all our lives, never giving up. I'm sure you've heard of the uh, great man of God, George Muller, who was, uh, lived in the 19th century, lived in the UK. He ran five orphanages in Bristol, and George Muller was known for his prayer life. And the story is told of how he prayed for two of his friends to become Christians his whole life. And just before George Muller died, one of them did come to faith in Christ. And the other one came to faith in Christ after George died. He never saw that come true. But his prayers were answered. It's an encouragement to pray for the lost and to not give up. So, uh, the first sub-point we've seen in our part in the salvation of others is praying. The second is actually sharing the gospel. That is what this portion of scripture encourages us to do. And again, that verse from Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Do you want to have beautiful feet? Well, tell others about Jesus. Uh, if we are praying for people, we can also pray, God, please use me to love people and ultimately, when the opportunity presents itself, to share the good news of Jesus with people. Uh, ask yourself, if the opportunity arose, could I explain the gospel to somebody? Uh, if not, then what a great thing to do to equip ourselves to be ready for that day, to familiarize ourselves with that little booklet which we have here, Two Ways to Live, to learn it off by heart so that we could present it to others. Uh, why not do dry runs of presenting the gospel with another Christian and try out and test out and see how you go in explaining the gospel to somebody else? And in terms of who we should pray for and be ready to share the gospel with, of course, the gospel is not a respecter of boundaries. In a multicultural society, uh, we are called, of course, to be a respecter of other people's religious beliefs, and so we should. But does that mean we shouldn't have a heart for sharing the gospel with them? We know, of course, that all paths do not lead to God. Uh, we know that all people need Jesus, no matter what their religious belief. We've seen in Romans 10 that Christ is easily accessible. The word is near to people. It's all there in the gospel. But Christ is not only easily accessible, 
but also equally accessible. Look at verse 11 again. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Uh, The gospel is available to all because it is needed by all. Uh, We don't need to tie ourselves in knots asking, has God chosen this person or not? Our responsibility is to pray for them, to love them, and where the opportunity arises, to tell them about Christ. But we can remember, we are not responsible for their response. They are, and that takes the pressure off us in telling others about Jesus. We can do it with complete freedom and with a heart which seeks God's glory. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this amazing teaching of this passage, uh, which shows us our responsibility uh, in salvation, uh, but also uh, our responsibility as believers in holding out the good news to others. Please, we pray, help us to live this out in our lives. Uh, To your glory. Amen.